Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and it is The Stacks Book Club Day, and we are thrilled to welcome back ESPN analyst Mina Kimes to discuss The Roundhouse by Louise Erdrich. The book was released in 2012, and it won the National Book Award. It's set in 1988 and centers a 13-year-old boy named Joe living with his parents in North Dakota. As his mother reels from a brutal attack on their reservation, the justice system is simply no help. So Joe and his friends set out seeking justice. We talked today about this literary thriller, the characters and scenes that stuck with us most, and our thoughts on justice more broadly. There are a lot of spoilers in today's episode. Make sure you listen through to the end of today's episode to hear our official announcement for our March book club pick. Quick reminder, everything we talk about on today's episode of The Stacks can be found in the link in the show notes. And listen, if you love the show and you want more of it, please go to patreon.com slash the stacks to join The Stacks Pack. The Stacks is a completely independent podcast, which means I could not make the show without listeners like you who put each month behind the show to make it possible. You get things like bonus episodes, our virtual book club, access to our lively discord. Plus, you get to know that your contribution is making this show happen every single week. Head to patreon.com slash the stacks to join. Special shout out to our newest members, Sophia Ali, Meg Helms, Hannah Cox, Caitlin Brown, Tamara Stramel, Ginger Fargus, Hannah Piercy, and Laura Kent. Thank you all so much. And thank you to the entire Stacks Pack. Okay. Now it's time for my conversation with Mina Kimes about The Roundhouse by Louise Erdrich. And remember, there are spoilers. All right, everybody. It is the Stacks Book Club Day. I am joined again by the wonderful Mina Kimes. Mina, welcome back. Hi. Um, And we're talking today about The Roundhouse by Louise Erdrich. So just to give folks a heads up, we will be spoiling the episode and I'll give you a quick rundown about what it's about, which is always the hardest thing for me to do every every time we do a book club episode. But basically, it's the story of a 13-year-old boy named Joe whose mother is brutally raped. It's a bit thrillery. He's trying to figure out what happened. It's about his community, his family uh, in a fictional town in uh, North Dakota. And then it's about him and his friends like going to figure it all out. And um, yeah, <laughs> not my strong suit, but that I think that sums that's, it up for now. Yeah. Um, we always sort of start in the same place for these book club episodes. Sort of generally, what did you think of the book? I mean, I, I guess I'll start here. I, I found it riveting. Like, 
The other Louise Erdrich book I read was The Night Watchman, which is what prompted me to ask to read this because I love that book so much. And I know she's so prolific, so I certainly don't know what all of her books are like, but it, it, that's one aspect of it that reminded me a bit of The Night Watchman is there's a little bit of a mystery and you, and you want to keep reading and you want to see what happens. And yeah, it's amazing. It was just amazing to me how she like mixed, the, you know, it's a coming of age story. It's dealing with, it's so singular and specific, but first and foremost, it's a book that like makes you compelled to keep reading it. And I read it really quickly as a result. Yeah, I had I had a weird feeling, not weird feeling. I had a weird experience reading this book. So I was super interested to know what would happen. But every time I would sit down to read the book, I would fall asleep, which is like, <laughs> it's so weird because usually when I fall asleep reading, it's like, I'm tired, but I was really interested. And like, I would dream about the book. Like it was like sticking with me, but it took me longer to read it than I would have thought sort of a thrillery mm. book would. And I think part of it, it's because it has like a lot of liter literary appeal to it, like literary fiction. And there's a coming of age story and it's not like a true thriller. And it's sort of like a like a sleepy thriller like it kind of moves slower but I was like really into her writing like I was really enjoying it but it did sort of like calm me in a way that I maybe wasn't expecting and I think maybe because like the middle is a little slow I thought the beginning and the end were like holy cow and I thought some of the stuff in the middle I was like where are we going where are we there's a there's a lot of detail in it and yeah. I, I've seen her writing compared to Faulkner um, mm. I think for that reason in, in that it gives you such a sense of place and it's so yeah. specific. And I think sometimes to your point, a lot of, and this was true that I watched as well. There's a lot of time, you know, it's not just plotty. There's also a lot of time spent in the book, say reminding readers of where you are and, mm -hmm. you know, we're, we're going to take a detour and I'm going to teach you about history uh, and, uh, the history of this tribe and the history, or they'll talk about the law, which is very important yeah. in this book. And I and I do think sometimes, yeah, that's what sort of, it, it's very distinctive about her writing, how detailed it is and how grounded it is in detail. But I could see that also maybe lulling you a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> that's the exact right word, lull. So, and the book is part, is like a loosely part of a trilogy, the, her like justice trilogy, yeah. which I thought was really interesting. Um, it's the second book. The first one is called The Plague of Doves. And then this is the second one. And then the third one is La Rose. And I know La Rose is a character in this book, but it's apparently not about that La Rose. I think it's connected to that mm. La Rose, but it's like a different family member with the same name or something. Mm. But I definitely felt like in reading this, I was curious to read the other two to like see how they were connected and stuff. Okay. I want to start with... I think we have to start with the mom. I feel like that story is like sort of like the propulsive center, the the sort of the rape, kidnap, abduction, abuse story. How did how did the thriller th through line work for you? Like, how did that part of the story work for you? Well, you know, the first half of the book is kind of you, you don't know who it is. And I think what is so interesting is it, the second half, you, you find out who right. committed the rape. It's... um a white man who has a complicated history with the tribe. His name is Lyndon Lark. Uh, we can get into that, you know, the detail, yeah. but there's, there's he, the reasons why he's compelled to do what he does. And, um, but once that's revealed, it's still a thriller because it's yeah. unclear if he's going to be brought to justice. And, and I, so to kind of answer your question, I guess that's what I found so compelling about it. it I was the, the fact that 
she was able to introduce suspense in two very different ways by solving yes. the crime halfway through. Yeah, I love I love that too. I love being like, oh, we know who it is. And I also loved that the mom always knew who it yeah. was. Right? Like that there was a person who there was never any doubt, even though we didn't know. And I think what's interesting about having like Joe, this 13-year-old boy, be the center of the story is that she's able to slow play it because it's like, oh, he's just a teenager. He might not understand like how he didn't pick up the gasoline thing. You know, it's like, yeah. oh, she was covered in gasoline and he went to get another match. And Joe's like, oh, he must have wanted to smoke a cigarette. And of course, as an adult reader, you're like, he tried to burn her, you yeah. know, like. And so I, I thought that that really served the story as having Joe be a little bit naive to what's going on, even though the mother always knew. And I liked how, like you said, after we find out that it's Lyndon Lark, there's still this question of like, well, what happens to him? Yes. Like, is he arrested? Is he held in jail? Is he prosecuted? And, you know, the linchpin, I guess, of the story is that it's unclear on which, under whose jurisdiction this crime has occurred because the mother can't remember, her name's Geraldine, can't remember where she was specifically on the roundhouse. Was she in federal, state, or tribal land? Which, I mean, it's like clearly just such a fascinating fucked up thing. And real. Real. Like that <laughs> yeah, was, I mean, I, while I was reading it, I, I put the book down halfway to better understand sort of the justice system and how I had no idea until I read this book the the messy history of justice on tribal lands and how their own judicial system, you know, you can't prosecute people from outside and um which is something, you know, Louise Erdrich wrote a op-ed in the Times about uh, you know just how much violence there is towards women on reservations and how difficult it is to prosecute um the rapists or assaulters especially if it's again people from the outside. I mean, I I, I couldn't believe it. I had no idea and it's incredible that so much to your point like hinges in this book on something as seemingly arcane as like land rights and or like the location. And I, I just thought the fact that she was able to weave that into this thrilling story, I, I thought was really amazing. Yeah, I totally agree. I was really fascinated about it. I mean, the whole jurisdiction of tribal lands is still being litigated and debated today. I mean, this book was written in 2012, which is not that long ago. Um, but in the in the history of America, but is a long time to still think that like these questions are still yeah. coming up. I mean, the Supreme Court just had a case, I think, last year that took away uh, tribal rights to have their own autonomy and, and things. So like this is not nothing new and also something that is very much current and present, which is like so fucked up. <laughs> like, it's just so crazy that you could rape someone and like kidnap another person and abuse a child. And depending on where everyone is standing, you can or cannot be brought to justice when there is proof that you did commit the crime. Like, it's just... Ugh. No, I mean, the, the part where the, the dad, who's a judge, who's kind of stands in for, I want to, you know, fix the system and do things the right way and, and who's sort of this... Um, He's a very like traditional morality in this book in some ways. Yeah, where he sits down and he uses like the casserole to explain to Joe how it works is so. Yeah. I, like I said, I don't want to hit this again, but just to take something that feels so bureaucratic and un just like about the law, and then bring it to life and and make you feel like what would it be like to actually be inside of this loophole 
It just right. it, it was such an interesting approach, I suppose, or reason to write this. Just what you just said made me think. I wonder if Louise Erdrich, when she was writing this, was thinking of people who are like not native or like who do not have indigenous family and live on reservations and like have that connection. If she was thinking of us as Joe and was like, I have to explain it to yeah. these people who have like no fucking understanding, like they're 13 years old. And I'm sure there's I mean, I don't know. But I, if that was me, that's how I would do it. I'd be like, I'm going to have a 13 year old character so that I can help teach these idiots. And then people who do have this connection will be like, yeah. I'm enraged because I'm annoyed that like we're moving at this slow of a pace kind of thing. I think, I, I don't know. It's like an interesting way. No, I love that idea. What a, what a, a graceful way to set up exposition, which isn't, you know, otherwise it would be odd to have adult. I don't know. You're right. It, it, and again, what a great example of using literary fiction to make something real for people or to try to enact change. But yeah, I, I definitely, I felt that same sense of like, curiosity and innocence about all of this that yeah. I guess a child would. Yeah. yeah. We are all Joe in some way. Um, okay. I have a, I don't know if you have a theory on this, but you know, the scene where they're like in the room and it's the mom, the dad and Joe and Basil is the dad is like, just, you know, casually talking about what's going on. He's like, you know, the governor's like going to adopt this kid and like whatever. And the mom goes and like pukes and then she comes back in and she kind of starts talking about what happened to her. She, she starts to explain. And I didn't understand how the dad knew that that was the thing that was going to get her to talk. Like how he had he figured it out? Had she told him? Was he just like guessing and kind of like seeing if it would if it would call her bluff or like, did you have a sense? You know, I I was wondering the same thing because. It's weird. The the revelation of who did it again, Lyndon right. Lark. It, it it's almost like sudden. Yeah. And when it happens, it, it's all you're right. It is revealed in a way that like nobody's surprised, which right. is really interesting, right? And earlier in the book, there's a scene where Joe is his dad has all these case files, and he's and Joe and he's him and Joe are kind of going through them, and he's explaining to them, and basically he's looking for people who might have it out for him, mm -hmm. like cases he's ruled against, you know, and yeah. and. Most of them have. And one of those cases is the case you're talking about, which is um, the case where Lyndon Lark basically tried to get the land belonging to his sister who was raised in his twin sister who was raised by people in the tribe, if, yeah. if I remember yeah. correctly. So he he wanted, you know, and, and she was they, born with some like physical deformities. Her yes. she's white, obviously, like Lyndon. Her white parents basically are like, we don't want her and uh, an indigenous woman in the community sort of she was like a nurse at the hospital. And then she takes Linda, the sister, twin sister, under her wing and yeah. unofficially sort of adopts her into the family. And when her adopted parents die, they leave the land. They leave some land, a home to Linda and Lyndon and his mother, yes. the birth mother of Linda, tried to like steal it back from them. Exactly. And so the, the judge rules in the favor of Linda or the her family. And I I do I felt like when he brings it up around his his wife, who then finally is like, yeah, points the finger and was like it was him. It did feel to me like he had a suspicion. Mm -hmm. And so he was just kind of 
putting it out there because at that point, you know, the first half of the book is the mother like slowly recovering from this horrible trauma. And as you said, she knows, but she won't say it. She won't talk to the detectives and the father and the son are kind of trying to bring her back to life in a way, but also tease this information out of her. And I, I to me, it did feel a little bit deliberate. He kind of had his own way of going about seeking justice here. And it was different from obviously the Joe's and, and the, but I did feel like the whole time he was working at it kind of slowly. Yeah. That was my sense too, that he was sort of just like seeing if it stuck, uh, but it just sort of came about. We didn't see other scenes where he was throwing out ideas, mm-hmm. but but I think by that point, Joe has mentioned the file. And so maybe that triggered something yes. in the dad that was like, oh, well, who would have a file, of course. And then Lyndon, he, so this file is of Mela or Myla, who is an indigenous woman who has a young baby, like a one-year-old baby. And the file names the father of the baby. And the father is the senator mm-hmm. right <laughs> the yeah. father is a senator who is a white guy who has a really bad history on the native american tribes in north dakota and did okay this is what i also didn't know did Lyndon work for the senator how was he connected to the senator or was it just that they both because he had a thing with Myla a thing with her or Mela or he was like obsessed with her yeah. in some yeah they, they, earlier in the book they talk a little bit about how he was like um like a fan almost of the senator okay. or something or they talked I, I, I might be misremembering this but they they said he was kind of trying to associate with him or looked up to him in some way and felt entitled to this woman in the way that he felt entitled to the land and that entitlement obviously was sort of the driving force for a lot of what he went on to do. Okay. I I, I couldn't remember. Like when I, you know when you're reading and something happens and you're like, did I miss yeah. that? Or was that something I'm supposed to like figure out on my own? And I wasn't sure. But anyway, so then he he finds out that the actual father is listed on this file and the mother, Geraldine, is the file keeper in the community. And so she knows like everyone's secrets essentially. And so uh, Myla, I'm, I'm calling her Myla. I like it. I'm calling her Myla. Uh, Myla's calls Geraldine and is like, I'm in danger over this file. That's how she goes to the place, to the roundhouse, which is where the crime takes place and is the title of the book. And that's where everything happens. Um, Lyndon then drives a car into the lake. The car is Myla's car. Myla goes missing. We don't know where she is. We think we find out at the end that she's dead because of like a drunk guy who steals Joe's bike being like, was it a dream or not? But it's not 100% clear. Um, we're sort of jumping around, but I, I want to talk about this crime and then go back to some of the other stuff like Joe's yeah. friends, because I feel like that makes the most sense of like how to do it. Um, oh, so then Joe goes to the roundhouse with his friends. And then later he finds this doll with all this money in it, like $40,000. And that's money that the senator has given to Myla and the baby to try to like pay them off essentially. Mm, Yeah. I wanted more about that money and how Joe grappled with that because once he realized he wasn't like, what do I do with this money? He was like, Oh, that's where the money came from. 
Yeah, and then well, well, yes. Well, at first when he gets it, he doesn't know. Right, he doesn't know, he but then the he doll. sees yeah. the car and he sees like a cloth that matches the baby doll, and yeah. he's like, th- "Oh!" And by then he's already gone to Sonia. Yeah, the aunt, the aunt, uh, former stripper who is an interesting and I think kind of important character, and and um, who's a woman he's kind of like sexually obsessed with, and yeah. uh, he. He just goes it, – it, it was interesting that he just goes to her. I mean, that was like an interesting choice. And she immediately helps him open up a bunch of accounts and puts it away. Well, and then, you know, while also kind of spending it before ultimately yes. <laughs> departing with like 75% of it. But um, I think because of he his initial reaction to it, like he, he never tells his parents. He keeps it from them. And then – the sort of ensuing shame that it results in in terms of like his interactions with Sonia, which I'm sure we'll talk right. about. It almost is like this, a thing where like he doesn't want to grapple with it. He's like, all right, I got this money. Like yeah. it, 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 you know what I mean? Like it's because because it, it, he's never going to tell anyone about right. it. And so he and also it's dangerous that he has it and right. finds it. You know, right. Lynn and Lark's still out there. You know, he doesn't know. So it is kind of an odd. I, I, I agree with you a little bit. Like he kind of puts it aside to me. I actually thought he was going to tell yeah. his parents about it and he just never does, which I thought was interesting. But there's a lot of things that happen in this book that are kind of surprising in terms of like how he as a 13 year old handles things. Totally. I really thought that like the money was going to come back in some way and like he was going to have to go back and get it or whatever. And it's sort of like just doesn't. Though there is this thing, there was this thing in me, right? Because Sonia keeps telling him like, I want you to go to school. I want you to co- go to college, like use it for your college. And we do find out because this is this book is all like a flashback told yeah. through from Joe, but it's a flashback to this time in 1988. And it we do find out that Joe like goes on to become a lawyer and like goes on to do these things. And so I do wonder, like, did this money actually make a way for him like did he does he use the money maybe and then there's also this whole like the convenience of the story I mean I think you have to have Joe's dad be a judge or a lawyer involved in the law to explain it to him and to us what's going on and for him to have connections with like law enforcement like I think it's just I think if he was the grocery store owner just wouldn't work you know what I mean but there is this question of like does Joe get to have this second ch- chance at life because of his dad and because of this money. And if so, especially the money part, like, is he not somehow implicated in this crime against his mom? Right? Like this hush money for this illegitimate air quotes child. I mean, he gets away with murder. <laughs> I mean, so, plus, yeah, plus he gets away yeah, with murder. But even well, even if he yeah, didn't but, murder him, but like, you know, yeah. or and because he murdered him. Yeah, well, that's that's what I think is so fascinating about the structure of the book, right? To your to your point, the fact that it is told from the future, so we as readers, we know everything works out for Joe. Right. We know he goes on to be like a prosecutor. I forgot if it was for the government, whatever. But he he's clearly successful and fine and healthy, and he marries a woman who's kind of makes a brief appearance in the book. Yeah. Um. So all these decisions he make, you know, stealing the money, keeping some of it, never talking about it, ultimately the the shooting, all of it. We like know how it ends, which I, I found to be so interest like such an interesting framework to view all of these choices this 13 year old makes. Because if not, I think you would be reading them the money, like you would read that thinking, oh my God, this is gonna come back to bite him. Yes. He's gonna get in trouble for this. Yes. To say nothing about the, of the actual killing. Right. Um right. but yeah, I mean he kept ten thousand dollars and clearly used it. 
<laughs> yeah, it, it didn't come back as far as we know, because if it did, we probably would have found out about it. You know, he would have been like, hey, then I got held up for $10,000. Like the the bigger the, the killing of the shooting of Lyndon Lark is, of course, the bigger plot point that introduces questions about morality and justice yeah. and retribution and all of that. But the money is a smaller version of that. To yeah. Be, like he doesn't do the right thing, which is no. so interesting, I think. OK, we're going to take a break and come back and talk about the murder. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Okay, we're talking about the murder. I've been waiting for 22 minutes in. I haven't even, we haven't even talked about the murder yet. I'm so excited. So, Lyndon Lark, we find out he does it. He gets released from the, from the jail because the land issue. The mom does not lie about remembering where the thing happens in the beginning. She then goes back and says, if I knew that I needed to lie, I would have just lied. But then I didn't lie, so I couldn't go back and lie now, which I was literally like, thank you, mom, because I would lie too in a fucking heartbeat. In a heartbeat, I would lie. I understand that feeling of like, oh, fuck, I should have just lied and I did it and now I can't lie because I'm pro-lying. Um, but then Joe is like, 
I'm going to take this into my own hands. I am going to learn how to shoot a gun. And then I'm going to kill Lyndon Lark on the golf course where he golfs. He goes to Linda, the sister, and is like, so, you know, when does your brother golf? Me and my dad might want to golf sometime. Again, pro-lying. He finds out. Then he gets his best friend, Cappy, to help him learn how to shoot. He goes like three days in a row. On the third day or the fourth day, he finds him there. He shoots him a few times. We find out that Cappy was there with him and like was the one who basically steadied the gun to make the kill shot. You and I talked before about True Biz, a book that you've read and a book that we did on this podcast in December of 2022. My biggest complaint with True Biz was that I thought the ending was too soft and that if the big factory or whatever was going to get blown up at the end, why not just let the kids do it? And this book, she (laughs) fucking lets the kids do it. And it is so gratifying. And to me, that's the difference between a book that is about young people for adults and a book that is a little bit aimed more towards young people, Mm. right? Is like Louise Erdrich was like, you know what? Kids can do bad things too. Kids can be passionate and empowered and make mistakes or make the right decision. I'm not actually going to moralize this murder. Like, I don't know. He raped his mom and disappeared a woman and a baby. Like, I guess not a baby, but made a baby an orphan, sort of. So I would love to hear your thoughts about the murder. Yeah, I didn't think he would do it. Me neither. I thought she was going to protect us, right? She was going to protect him and protect us. And we know he we know he's like a lawyer and all these things. So we just assume he couldn't possibly do it because how would he get to be a successful guy? So that's exactly why. The, the, again, the framing of it sets up this expectation that at the end of the book, he's going to give the money back and they're going to find a way to maybe get him in prison. Or if not, they'll like, you know, other lessons will be learned. You know, so many yeah. books like that. Nah, he just fucking does it, right? Yeah. And, um, and and when you're reading it, you're like, do it, do it, do it, do it. And you're so happy because the, Lyndon Lark is portrayed as basically the worst. Like pure, pure evil, like clearly a disturbed human who's got, you know, who stands in for all of the ways in which these people have been violated. And and so by the time it comes around, and you're convinced at this point that justice will never be served, right? Right. So in the moment, I'm like, yes. And then afterwards is there's kind of a reckoning because the book continues mm-hmm. and from there, Cappy, who, by the way, we also know at the beginning of the book, that, but the first thing Joe tells us is that he's dead. Yeah. We don't know when he's dead, but he is clearly, he becomes kind of, as pages of the book, you know, he are, and as it goes on, it becomes clear how much he loves him and how beautiful mm-hmm. their relationship is. And you talked about him shooting him. There's this revelation that brought tears to my eyes where he said he was there every morning behind yeah. him just watching to, yeah. so at the end of the book, there, you know, Cappy falls in love with this girl from like this Christian thing, which is very, it's, it's one of the many funny things about 13 year olds in this book that yeah. is just, you know, part of the comic relief of the book. And so they're driving to go see her and, and he dies in a car accident. And I guess that was, the, the incidents are not connected cl- directly, but it almost felt like there's so much of this book they talk about the like justice and then what the costs are. And the, the, I think the Catholic priest is the one who talks about how something good can come out of something evil. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and the, this, and they're, and I, and I felt like, oh, I, there's still a reckoning from this choice that's unfolding and will probably unfold for the rest of this kid's life. 
Right. And he doesn't give any indication of regretting it in no. when he tells and his parents find out about it. But you don't come out of it feeling clean at no. all. And he has like the sleeping problems, right? He's like having yeah. these really bad nightmares and stuff. But the, I mean, I think like this is sort of gets at this, I guess, the, my interpretation of the central quest- question of this book, which is like, is justice a thing that is served by institutions? Is it a yeah. thing that's served by communities? Is it a thing that's served by protecting our loved ones or a thing that's, you know, served by ratting people out? Like there's just these questions about what is just and what is not just in the world and in the story. And like we talked about earlier, how unjust it seems that you could get raped on certain corners of certain pieces of land and be there's no retribution in the court systems. And, you know, this also is complicated by my personal feelings about prison abolition and and the quote unquote criminal justice system and those things, which I'm going to, you know, try to not bring too much into this. But there's this question about like, is killing a person bad always? Right. Right. Like that's sort of the question, right? What Lyndon Lark does, we feel is bad. And what we feel that, you know, or we're sort of coached around feeling that what Joe does is isn't as bad because it's revenge. Right. Yeah. But I, I, you know, I guess that depends on your feelings about revenge. Yeah. (laughs) My, my, My feeling about it is he what he did was not morally wrong, but he shouldn't have had to do it. And I think yes. that's, again, to the structure of the book where it's kind of this two part thriller. You know, Lynn and Lark is just the, the surface villain of the book. He's just any he just, you know, he's disposable. Right. But the real villainy is the fact that this 13 year old kid was put in this fucking position where he has to murder a kid because the justice system is so messed up. Right. And so it's like you want him to do it. But you're so sad that he has to, right? And I think that's that's how his parents felt at the like. There's just this sadness, and they keep going and they're driving at the end. But it's like, man, it's so awful that all of these people were put in this position, and that that has nothing to do with Lyndon Lark at the end, right? Right. That 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 the system is such that the best possible answer yeah. for everyone to like ride off into the sunset is for a 13 year old to take on or to feel that he has to take on, you know, this situation. And there's also this thing that that's talked about in the book is that Lyndon Lark is a his uncle was responsible for a lynching of Native Americans like in a previous generation and that there's like this generational violence. And I think that, you know, Louise Erdrich is getting at that in obvious ways by explaining that, but also less obvious ways, you know, like where she's talking about what you're saying. It's like the only options at this point are revenge or get over it. Right. Like there, there is no one else is coming to help you or save you, whether it's Joe who does it or his dad or his uncle or, or whatever, someone is going to have to take quote unquote extrajudicial revenge. If, if we want something to happen. And part of me is like, I don't know. I don't know if it's worse. Like one of my big, one of my big things is like, I don't believe in the death penalty because I don't think that the government should kill people. But I also feel like if someone kills your uncle and you go and kill them, like I'm okay with that. Like I'm sort of okay with like vigilante justice in some ways because it's like a crime of passion versus like 
if the government does arrest Lyndon Lark and he's locked up for 10 years, like that doesn't change anything. It doesn't help anything. So I don't know. This book made me feel more (laughs) frustrated about these things, but also made me feel like maybe our thinking of justice is just like so skewed and fucked up that like something like this that maybe is like kind of a net positive. I'm like questioning. Well, I mean, I think that was the point of having a 13 year old be the one who carries it out. Because if let's say Whitey, his uncle had done it, probably feel okay. Like, I I mean, you know, it (laughs) certainly wouldn't create this sense of angst and dissatisfaction yeah. and, and worry. I was just so worried about him after, mm-hmm. even though I knew he would be okay. Yeah, we meeting. know. You, you know he's fine. But like, <laughs> you just, we know that 13-year-olds shouldn't have to do the, plural in this case, it's two boys who do it, shouldn't have to do those things. They shouldn't have to keep these kinds of secrets. They shouldn't know and learn as much as they do in this one summer. Because um, it's, it's coming of age novel, but in the worst possible, in, in the best, funniest ways. Right. You know, but then also in the worst way. So I think it was pretty deliberate on her part to kind of make us feel all those complicated feelings you're talking about yeah. by having this this sweet kid who's like lovely, who yeah. you come to really adore by the end, you know? Yeah. And and there's also like the governor, the sen- I think maybe he's the governor, not the senator. Anyways, the, the politician, mm. you know, he ends up with a baby. A Native American baby, and he's a known racist, like anti-indigenous person. And like there's no justice there for that baby. Like it's like we get this teeny tiny, like we kill this one guy and like yay, because Lyndon sucks, but it's not like it changes anything. It's not like yeah. it makes a difference. It doesn't, you know, balance the ledger for what's going on. And I think that like that of also is so unsettling, right? Like yeah. that there's so many things that are get gotten away with in this. Yeah, block. no, no. I mean, it reminds me of, of the Night Watchman a little bit, and I'm I suspect is probably a theme that you see across Louis Sergeant's books, which is, you know, these people just fighting for a little, you know, peace and the safety for their own families, and kind of just scrapping for, you know what they can take no, in the face of such indignity and erasure is, is a big thing in the, in the night watchman. And I do, I felt the way reading this one too, like at the end, the family is intact, but you know, at so much cost and, and there's, and there's, there's some, there's a bit of justice, but it's not enough. And right. yeah, it, it, right. it's tough. Yeah. And like the and dad's had a heart attack and we know it's like the first of a few, it sounds like it's just like, yeah. it's just, it's brute. I mean, it's just so brutal and it, even though the bad guy ends up dead, it doesn't really feel like super, doesn't feel like Quentin Tarantino revenge fantasy, you know? <laughs> like, it's not like Hitler's no. dead. It's sort of just like, yeah, okay, well, this still fucking sucks for everybody, and now Cappy's dead. Um, I want to talk about Sonia, because yeah. that scene, the striptease scene, holy shit, that is a fucking <laughs> iconic, that scene is incredible. Um. The stacks pack, we have a discord and people were like, holy shit, chapter eight. And then I got to chapter eight and I was like, holy (laughs) shit, chapter eight. Um, It's just so Sonia, 
the aunt who helps him deposit the money and then sort of like steals some of it to get like diamonds and pants and maybe like some cute boots and stuff. She goes after Joe's grandpa turns like 103 or something. She her her birthday present to him is that she's going to do a strip tease dance because she's like hot and she's a fun and she's a good hang and she gets it. He's not getting any. He was an old man. He wants to feel young and sexy. So she goes over there and she's like, Joe, you need to leave. And Joe's like, I'm not leaving. And she's like, Joe, you need to leave. And then Joe's like, no, I'm not leaving. If if you make me leave, I'm going to tattle about the money or whatever. And so then she's like, fuck you, you piece of shit. And she does her striptease dance. And then afterwards, she basically reads him for filth and is like, you're just like everyone else. I treated you nice. I treated you like a mother. I loved you. I cared for you. You were always looking at my tits. You always like... <laughs> True. You know, and then and then you're yeah, yes. true. And then and then Talks you so much <laughs> all the time in the weirdest way that I'm like, you're not 13. I'm like, oh, yeah, right. yeah. Well, some know, of the writing. Yeah, back, yeah, I'm like some of the writing about her breasts are just like it's written like a like, <laughs> I don't know, a 19 like 42 like romance novel anyways. And she basically is like, you're no better than anybody else. And then she goes on to take the money leave him $10,000 and leave town. That scene. Incredible. I mean, Sonia is just like such an incredible character. She is such a force in the book. She's not in it a ton, but every time she is, it's just like, whoa, like the, the air is sucked out of the room. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. We kinda, so the book, you know, Joe's the narrator from the jump. So you're always inclined to want what's best for him and to side with him. Were you upset at all that she pieced out with yes, most of the money? I was. Okay. I There was I, a part of me yeah. that was, and I was kind of thinking, I was a little bit conflicted about it. So I was upset that she took the money because, of course, we're rooting for Joe. Jo- and yeah. I also felt like it was sort of like a bitch move. Like, it's like, okay, he yeah. brought the money. Give him at least 50-50. But I also do understand like when she goes on to explain that Whitey, her partner, who's not actually her husband, like wouldn't marry her because he basically thought that she was like, you know, trash, essentially, like she was a stripper and these things and and that she had this daughter who, you know, just, you know, she had a tough, tough road. But mm. I definitely was like, don't take Joe's money. <laughs> I did, too. And it was interesting how. He, chill he was about it I think part because he knew it was he knew it gotten and you know it wasn't supposed to be his in the first place and, yeah. and it, but it was I thought it was interesting how he didn't like freak out about it but that scene I thought about a lot because I was like what does this mean like what what is this character's role in this book and I guess where I landed and I'd like to hear what you think is Amidst this like very serious story about sexual violence and the things men, horrible things men do to women, there's this simultaneous story, which is about a group of horny 13-year-old boys mm-hmm. and their sexual, ex- their first sexual experiences. And it's really funny and sweet and stand by me-ish, honestly. Right. So stand by me. It's, oh my God. It, it's like the same. Super, super charming. And you know, Cappy meets this, they're obsessed with girls. They don't really know. Yeah, they're 13. And I thought Sonia was kind of like where those things intersected a little bit, where when she does read him for filth, it's his first realization that as a man who's been ogling this woman the entire time, he might be a little bit of a shithead too. And like, it was, you know, we talk about, again, like when you think about coming of age, you think so much about like falling in love, whatever. But that's part of coming of age too, is realizing the way you can affect women and how you, they can, you can, 
they can feel terrible because of you. And right. I, the more I thought about it, the more I thought like, oh, okay, that was, there was like a lesson in there for him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the way that women are talked about throughout the book, right? Because there's also this grandma character who's like, loves dirty talk and like, wink, wink, so nod, dirty. nod. Yeah. Uh, and, and I feel like that, that's sort of like an archetypal character, right? The like granny who like talks about sex and you can't wow. can't help herself. And then, you know, we have, that's like one end. And then we have the mom that's sort of like the other end that is destroyed by sexual violence. I mean, she's not talking, she's not eating for a long time. Like she's sort of a shell of a person. And then in the and then like you mentioned there's the the christian girl who loses her virginity to cappy and then the other you know woman character is or the main one there's an aunt somewhere but the main other one is sonia and she's sort of empowered by her sexuality and loving and maternal and takes no shit from anybody but also is very vulnerable and fragile and she is getting beat up by by whitey and like she sort of embodies all of these different things yeah. of like what a woman can be like that women can hold all sorts of things and i i was really touched i think the most by her humor like her being like yeah i'll do a strip tease show for grandpa like i don't like i don't care who almost I, dies by the who way almost dies because he like has a heart attack ejaculating essentially he's like comatose but I just I I loved that part about her because I think so often women are some version of victim or horny or you know like oversexualized or undersexualized or or whatever but they lack like the agency that I think is what Sonia has is like she's like yeah. this is a choice that I'm making I'm choosing to do this strip show for grandpa like I'm not being right. forced it's something fun for me to do I'm happy to make him happy I love this person and the same thing with how her relationship with Joe before he sort of gives her this ultimatum is like she knows he's looking at her that way but yeah. she loves him and she appreciates that he's a child and he's figuring things out and she always believed that he was a sweet boy even if he was like coming into his sexuality and I just I really appreciate re really appreciated that part of her is like that she had the humor and sort of the like casualness to be like I've had a lot of really horrible things but also like not every man is terrible and and it's up to me to decide what I'm comfortable with and what feels safe. And it's the second that Joe pushes her to do something she doesn't want to do that she's like, I'm going to do this. And then I'm going to let you know that I'm yeah. so much smarter than you. I've been through so much more than you. You're 13 years old and you're going to learn today about women. And I just it's just such a fantastic, fantastic scene and moment. And it endears Sonia. It endeared Sonia to me in a way that I was not expecting Right. I think I think your read is so so good and like it really captures just like the complexity of sexuality and right. and again in a book where there's everything on the, the range of the gamut from a horrible violet rape to a strip tease for a grandpa. <laughs> right. And, you know, this woman being, I think, sort of this symbol of like, well, you know, if, if she's in control of the situation, if it's wanted, if it's fun, if it's consensual just, just and when you're a 13 year old boy, you're still learning about all that shit. Like all, they're right. still, they have no idea. They try to learn about it from their priests. Like they're, <laughs> right. you know, I, I do think it's such a pivotal moment for him as a boy to like understand, oh, this woman is not just a sex object. Right. And what is my role in this? And what are the lines that can and can't be crossed? How does that work? I thought it was really, really interesting and really complicated. Yeah. And- 
So in addition to like all of the Sonia stuff and like the the sexual part of the Sonia stuff, there's all this other weird like little sex stuff that comes up, right? Like yeah. the girls and and the, this like weird scene where they're talking about the grandma talking about sex and then they all pull off and like go masturbate in the corners and like in the forest. <laughs> Very weird moment. But then there's also like... This, I mean, there. it's a very strong choice to have this book about, essentially about a rape, be told by the victim's child, who is a boy, yeah. right? Like, we really never get into Geraldine's head. We really, like, it's a, yeah. it's a story about a rape, but it's really a story about what a rape does to those around the person who has been victimized, right? Like, and I think that that is an interesting way to think about to think about this kind of violence, right? Like, it's like, we don't actually hear from the woman. We don't, the closest we get to hearing from any woman about sexual violence is this scene with Sonia, which is just a really interesting way to frame the, 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 book. the actual rape is never described in Not any really. detail. No. Yeah, which is, I mean, it, yeah. So it's like you're this 13 year old, he, it, it was interesting to me how quickly he like, is told what happens to yes. you. And like, yes. yeah, I, I guess, yeah. But it's like, he doesn't, I I think part of partially what happens in the scene with Sonia is like, he doesn't actually understand what rape is. He knows that it's like some sort of sexual violence, but he doesn't really know. And I think this scene with Sonia is sort of the first time that he understands that like what he's done is maybe perhaps a form of sexual violence, right? A hundred percent. Yeah, I think, yeah. Yeah, which is interesting because it, it's so relatively small. He's just looking at her boobs, right? But like right. understanding like the, effect that you as a very very young man can have on a woman that she's noticed this whole time right that when you did this other thing it suddenly cast it in a different light you know it is a powerful thing for him to learn I think yeah um, even though it's so very different yeah do you have I, I wonder if you have more thoughts about the boys themselves like the group of boys <laughs> and sort of that that like framing and I mean definitely team Cappy love love Cappy but they go do they run around they do much stuff they eat peanut butter and pickle sandwiches which is just such a hard no for me I like can't <laughs> I think my favorite scene of theirs not but is the one where they they're really into Star Trek which yes. they talk about a lot and one of them has like you know ability to watch on TV or something but um there's a part where they compare their penises to Star Wars characters. Yes. Where it's, what do you have a Darth Vader? Right, <laughs> if you're circumcised, circumcised or not. That really, I was like, Luis. Yeah, these you boys. Really got, you really nailed these 13-year-old boys because that is, it, it, which is, it's funny. And I think it's it's it brings a lot of lightness to the book, you know, which is otherwise pretty heavy. The, all of the scenes with the three of them bopping around and just getting into 13-year-old boy stuff. And it's such a, that was like I talked about Stand by Me. There's a little bit of, there's a little bit of a lot of books in this, but I, I, I that was I thought, of really, I, I, I think I ultimately, I really did love the fact that she, told it from their point, really from Joe's point of view, but like to, make it again a coming of age story in multiple ways. I thought was really really astute and made you like feel it all kind of in a different way. That was really unique. Yeah, it just gives so much heart to the book. I, yeah. I mean, there's definitely parts where I was like, this is running a little long and some of the French friendship stuff. I, dudes being dudes. Yeah, I just I'm like, uh, I don't know. I don't really care about your penises. Like, I don't know. It's a little much for me. But I think it was important. I, th I thought the stuff with the priest was really great. I sort of loved yeah. him. He, you know, he's 
He's blown up in the Beirut embassy bombing in 1983. He's he's had some it appears some major surgery in his nether regions, and he's like real fit, real aggressive. Not not your typical priest, but he has you know some wisdom. And there's a scene where it's very early when they're I think uh, when. Louise is explaining, like describing the priest when they're watching him through the window or whatever. And because they, they think he might have done it. They, yeah, they think he might have done yeah. it. Exactly. Yeah. But she like describes him in this. I can't, it's just like the way that she explains him. I'm like, oh, of course, like that's exactly who that man is. And I think that's one of her like skills in this book is that she can give you a few sentences about someone and you're like, yeah. I know exactly what that person looks like. I know exactly who that person is. I know how, like, where their pants ride. Like, it's like you can just, yeah, you just, feel you just feel the person in just you know three or four sentences which I really loved she really captures how when you're 13 certain adults are just larger than life yeah and and your world is small and so we're so focused on a Sonia or I think his name was Travis yeah father Travis whatever and they're all you think about and all you talk about and you want to know everything about them and she, I feel like, just makes it so believable that, like, they would be the subject of fascination of these 13-year-olds. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, um, I love, like, French, I don't know, I just love reading, like, I love books that make me feel like the, the kids are really friends, because, mm-hmm. like, you know, it's such a, it's, to be that age, like, it's such a it's emotional bond that is weirdly forged when you're talking about your dicks and right. Star Trek and stuff. <laughs> right. And then when you get it, it, all of that, I think you, you kind of have to have to get to the point where when you realize Cappy's been following him every day, you cry a little bit. Right. Because she is, she did. I, I do think like you need that investment in their friendship yeah. to, to make right. it hit so, so hard at the end. I think you're right. I just, you know, have no heart. So I'm like, <laughs> enough of these friends. I also loved how they were always like looking where to go so they could eat. It was like, oh, who yeah. will feed us? I'm like, that, that also feels really spot on. So much of the book is just like them trying to it's find like, someone to yeah. give them sandwiches or them, something. Them trying to find someone to give them sandwiches. Them drinking milk. I love milk, but even I don't drink that much milk. They were like drinking so milk constantly. Milk. I'm like, it's the middle of the summer. Aren't you guys hot? Like, ugh, curdled milk in the middle of the day. Did you feel like this would be such a good movie though? Yeah. Like, Yes. Oh yeah, my God. It would be stuff, such yeah. a good movie. I mean, it, it's also like now and then, like boys yeah. now yeah. and then. Riding vibe, their bikes. Riding yeah, their bikes yeah. everywhere, <laughs> like trying to figure out about a murder or a death or whatever. Like yeah. it's totally, totally that. Someone mentioned that it's similar, yeah. like that some of the friendship stuff in this book felt similar to um, the TV show Reservation Dogs, which I haven't watched, oh, haven't but like that. it has that same kind of like friendship vibe. Did you know that she wrote this book after her cancer diagnosis? Like during, no, I didn't know that. she's diagnosed with breast cancer, like, and wrote this book in a few months during that time, which I also thought was really interesting thinking about like the mother-child dynamic and and sort of this like fear of your parent never coming back or never being normal again. I don't know. It just was sort of, when I, I read that after I finished mm-hmm. the book and it sort of was like haunting a little bit. Hmm. I mean, she definitely cares a lot about familial bonds. and yeah. But gosh, and again, I've only read a couple, but like both this the book and The Night Watchmen, you're the, just the thing that over the overriding feeling is like, oh my God, these families love each other mm. so much. Now, it's an interesting decision, though, to make it be about the son's perspective of his own parents and I guess sort of the losing a little bit of innocence and wanting to protect them and, and do the thing yeah. that you know his dad doesn't do but that's that is really interesting that she had that 
that state of mind, I suppose, in writing this. Yeah. Um, before we get out of here, we always talk about the cover and the title. Um, we sort of mentioned where the title comes from, which is this the place where the where the rape and uh, happens, um, which is the roundhouse. I struggled to understand the significance of that like Nana Push story. Did you mm. have the I, I I'm always yeah. really bad with like a dream within a dream or a story within a story. I'm always just like having dreams. Yeah. I'm like, I can't I hate this. I I it's one of the yeah. things I hate in books when it's like, oh, this this person is like sleep talking. I'm like, okay, gotta go. But I would love to hear what you thought about it because I did not have well, a good read on it. Yeah. So I guess so the grandpa Mamut I, I forget his name. Mamut, yeah. Mamut, so, uh who he tells the story of while he's sleeping of the roundhouse, which is basically Nanapush was the name, I think, of, um, um, you know, several generations ago, a young man who was saved essentially when a buffalo let him like crawl into inside the buffalo, right? Because just to to not freeze to death and whatnot. And so he and ultimately landing in North Dakota, they built this as like kind of almost like a sacred space as a testament to that act of preservation I suppose my only read on it was the fact that this thing that was built with this intention of being a sacred space, a safe space, a protective space, ultimately the very location of it ended up being the cause of so much pain and Mm -hmm. harm and whatever. To me, it was just um, a a kind of a further, and there's a lot in this book, just another example of how how this tribe in particular couldn't protect itself and the thing that was supposed to be safe was actually dangerous that was my read on it Mm. um, just because the location is so important to the actual crime yeah I I, there's a few other events that happen near and around the roundhouse that we learn about when the father is going through the files with um with joe and you know one of them is like there's a, a drunk guy who dies and he tries to be the family tries to pick like, you should have protected him or something. I don't, it was sort of like an accidental death. Mm. And the dad's like, there's nothing we could do here. And then, of course, this event happens there. And there's all this like particular particulars of the location and what that exactly means. And and it, it, I guess to your point, it sort of like makes this space like a hostile space. Right. Like it's yeah. like we can't we can't feel fully safe or whole here because it is not fully ours. And there's a question about what what's touching what and who is responsible for which pieces of this thing. I, I, I think that, you know, that's sort of my, my sense of it, but uh, it's a great title because it comes up. So I think it's like page 54 is the first time we hear yeah. about the roundhouse. And so it's like kind of like always like looming as well. This, yeah. This place, well, you're like, this, why does, why does it matter that it happened here? Whatever. Yeah. Like, you gotta, and it turns out it matters. A it lot, matters a right? lot. It's and, like yeah. key, key. Um, yeah. The cover, I, I, there's a few covers. I have this one with the oh, I have red. The, yeah. I have the same one. Okay. Yeah. There's also one that's like gray with like, kind of like rose gold colored something on it but this one that we have is like a it's white with a woman's head and her hair kind of flowing and you can see one eyebrow and then everything else about her is covered up in a red sheet um kind of all blowing to the right if you're looking at it and i think it's kind of a creepy good cover i did look it up louise erdrich's daughter a asia 
Ed Erdrich, she designed this cover and oh, a lot wow. of her other covers. Um, almost all of them for a while now. Um, so I thought that was really fucking cool. <laughs> that is cool. I, I maybe I don't know if it's the same daughter, but I remember reading an article about her when at least maybe she only has one daughter. I don't know. Works at her bookstore. You know, she that's has, a like, different a daughter. She has and, yeah. Okay. She has like what a, three or four daughters. What a fantasy of a, a writing life to have like this bookstore that people, I, don't, I mean, not, maybe yeah. not of her life, but like I read, yeah. did she like writes the, the little notes that you see at bookstores? Like, yeah. like, imagine like walking into a bookstore. It's like, oh, Louise Erdrich wrote all these. It's yeah. so crazy to me. Yeah. No, she has, I think she has three or four daughters. She also was married before to a man who was then like accused of sexual abuse against their children not not oh, louise's yeah. children i believe they were his children from a previous or something like that oh, yeah. and it's like this very traumatic story that i read all of this after finishing the book and i was like oh this shows up here as well <laughs> right like Gosh. but yes her, one of her daughters does the covers one of her daughters manages the bookstore one of her daughters like helped take she's like thanked in the acknowledgments helping to like take care of her during her cancer treatments um and then they have a, a younger a younger daughter who's like maybe like 12 or maybe she was mm. 10 or 12 at the time of this book so maybe she's 20 now um <sighs> I think that's everything. Is there anything else that we didn't talk uh, about that you're like, I feel like we have to talk about it? No, I, just listening to you talk about it, I, I didn't know that much about her life, but I can see why she's the kind of person who would be interested in the idea of uh, children protecting their parents and yeah, how that affects them. Yeah, and totally. In addition to obviously the larger themes of like what it means about you know justice and tribal life and all of that. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm really glad we read this book. I, I'm also glad we just talked about it because it's a really complicated book with like really complicated themes and I feel like uh, talking about it, I felt like I kind of understood some of them a little bit better. Oh, good. Me too. I know. I was. Ner- I always get nervous <laughs> with fiction books. So I'm like, I don't know if I understood what the author is trying to do. So it's always helpful to like talk it out. Um, Mina, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed this. And everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. All right, y'all, that does it for us today. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you again to Mina Kimes for being our guest. And now it is time for the announcement of our book club selection for March. Our book is the iconic collection of essays, Bad Feminist by Roxane Gay. We will discuss the book on Wednesday, March 29th. And make sure you listen next week on March 1st to find out who our guest will be. If you love the show and want inside access to it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks to join the stacks pack. Make sure you're subscribed to The Stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts or Spotify, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. This episode of The Stacks was edited by Christian Duenas with production assistance from Lauren Tyree. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite, and our theme music comes from Tagirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. <laughs> <laughs>